Matthew chapter 5. It has been a really, um, really strange and disturbing week in our world. And you've probably seen the news and, and seen all that's gone on from the, from the kind of frivolous discussion about uh, coffee cups and what's on them to this horrible murder of a pastor's wife in a quiet little neighborhood in Indiana. Uh, pastor's wife and her unborn child, by the way, that's two murders. To what happened in Paris in the last couple of days and the awful massacre that took place. Um, all these things really remind us that we're in the last days. And I think it produces a, a mix of fear and, and soberness and maybe even anger at what's going on and, and just a, a really um, clear transformation of what we've always considered to be normal. That, that normal is different now, that this is normal and it's probably just going to get worse. And then you, you almost get a, I think, hopefully a, a sense of spiritual excitement how quickly and how specifically we're seeing what we studied in Revelation coming true before our very eyes every day. That this is not just a drill. This is actually what's happening. This is, this is prophecy being fulfilled. And not only has it started, but we're right in the middle of it. We are living in the end times. We are living in the days where God is bringing everything to a head and the Spirit of God is going to take His hand off the world and we're going to see chaos. Prayerfully and hopefully, we're going to be in heaven because God will take us out. But the world is in a mess this morning. And what we're seeing now, we, we look at it, we say, well, how can we, how can we react? How can we make a spiritual difference? How do we have an impact on people's lives? Because we obviously can't just sit passively by and watch this take place. We know that we have a calling. So how do we effectively communicate the truth of the gospel? How do we interact with people on a daily basis and, and bring them the hope of salvation at a time when the world is, is either uh, lacking in hope or confused about what's going on and unsure what to make of all this, or maybe just oblivious and, and thinking that it's not going to affect them? You know, I've kind of watched over the last days to see uh, where the outrage is, what the, what the backlash is going to be against these terrorist attacks. But it struck me last night that there's still something kind of muted about it. There's still just kind of a dullness to the response that, that oh, yes, this happened and hundreds of people died and hundreds of people are injured and it's horrible and I hope it doesn't happen here. But, but we're just going to keep on going with our daily lives. We're just going to keep going to the mall. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. And, and, and it didn't happen here, so what can we do? Now, there isn't much we can do physically. I mean, beyond what would be normal. There's not much we can do personally, physically, to stop the evil that's being perpetuated. But there is so much we can do spiritually. And so much we can do practically to, to show people the truth of Jesus Christ and the power of a life that's transformed. And that's what Jesus is talking about in our text this morning here in Matthew chapter 5, that as his disciples, that we have an active calling and a responsibility to bring every person that we come in contact with to an understanding of Christ and God's grace. And he explains that using two everyday examples that we know well. You've probably studied this text before, so I pray the Lord will give us some fresh insight into us uh, into it. But, but these 
these things that he talks about in verses 11 to 15 are very, are very easy to relate to as spiritual principles. And we'll take a couple minutes this morning and kind of dig down into that and, and develop that a little bit. But let's read what he says. It's right here at the start of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Let's start in verse uh, 11. Got to go back a page, sorry. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law, until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now you see in the text that this section takes place right after Jesus has described how to be blessed by God. That when we live out our faith, even in the midst of difficulty, that, that God blesses that and uses us in a powerful way. So, so when we live as we're called to live, when we live as we're equipped to live, uh, it's going to impact people one way or the other. It's going to impact some people for the gospel, some people to get saved, some people's hearts to be awakened, and them to come to Christ and trust in Him and live a life of devotion to God. But in other ways, it's going to adversely impact our relationship with those people who don't love Jesus. And he says here, if you look back at verse 11, that, that we will be criticized, we'll be lied about, we'll, we may even be persecuted because of Him. In other words, our relationship with Christ should create opposition. It can't help but create opposition. If we think we can live for Christ and never have any enemies or any opposition or anybody being critical of us or turning against us, then we're fooling ourselves because the gospel is an offense to many. So maybe you've experienced it. Family members who disassociated from you as they did when Jesus went back to Nazareth and it said that even brothers and sisters, even, even people that were close to him wouldn't believe and he couldn't do miracles there. He left because there was such unbelief. So there may be family members, maybe you're facing that uh, next week with Thanksgiving where, where you're going to get together with family and there's going to be great tension in the room because people don't want anything to do with you because you're a believer. Or maybe there are friends who abandon you as they did with Jesus and as they did with Paul who basically died alone in jail begging Timothy, please come see me because people have done me great harm and people have, have left me and abandoned the work of ministry. There are going to be friends along the way that abandon you. Friends that hurt you. There are going to be neighbors who misunderstand you and mock you like they did with Noah. Criticizing him and saying, you're a fool 
you're dumb. What are you doing? Why are you, why are you living that way? It has no merit. There are going to be enemies that accuse you and attack you. It has happened to so many people throughout the Bible, from Elijah to David to Daniel to Esther, all throughout people who are, are going to criticize. And that doesn't even add the amount of spiritual warfare that we face every day from the enemy who's constantly trying to undermine. There's no question that this is a challenging time to be a believer. It's always been challenging to be a believer. Just read throughout the New Testament. Just read throughout Acts. But it seems like an especially difficult time now to be a follower of Christ in this culture. And it seems even more confusing. And, and we want to make sure we don't complicate that or, or, or uh, distract ourselves or become discouraged by, by being worldly, by being uh, full of sin or, or taking this frivolously of what's going on. Uh, so we want to be careful uh, how we act, how we talk, how we behave. We want to be careful that we're not debating theology on social media, which of course is the source of all great theology, right? Social media. We've got to be careful that we don't become distracted. We, we spend time, and, and I, please hear my heart this morning, we spend time wondering, you know, whether we should be outraged by, by red coffee cups or whether we should be discouraged by the fact that, that a mall where I actually went to as a kid replaced the Christmas tree with a glacier. These are interesting things, and these are maybe signs of what's going on, but let's be careful that we're not spending too much time debating those because it's a lot easier to talk about it than to do it. It's a lot easier to get caught up in those things rather than holding really strong biblical convictions and living out our faith every day. Imagine the people in China, the believers in China this morning, debating coffee cups. Imagine the believers in Syria who are threatened with being beheaded if they don't denounce their faith and become Muslims. Imagine them debating why the public square doesn't have a Christmas tree. We become Americanized in our thinking in terms of what we debate. And not only do we need to tell ourselves that we don't live in a Christian culture anymore, we have to tell ourselves that it has shifted to a very non-Christian culture where there is a very significant need for us as believers to have a fresh influence on the hearts and minds of people. And that becomes even more urgent when we see something happen like happened in Paris. It shouldn't surprise us, but it should awaken us. It shouldn't shock us that this is going on, but it should change us and call us to action. See, passive acceptance never institutes change. Lack of prayer, lack of calling on the Lord never incites the Lord to action. If that's the approach that we take, we're going to find that there's so much room for spiritual decline. And the enemy's counting on that. He's counting on Christians being passive. He's counting on Christians being soft. He's counting on Christians not having deep conviction, but, but just kind of negotiating the word and negotiating morality and just kind of going about our business. So we have to be very intentional about fighting that. Because even if we aren't living in a Christian culture, it doesn't mean we shouldn't evangelize, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't be bold Christians. In fact, it should ramp up the desire and the opportunity to do that, to influence people for Christ. Jesus didn't live in a Christian culture, and yet he rebuked people, and he called people to repentance, and he told the religious leaders that they were, that they were hypocrites, and he got angry that his temple was being defiled 
The apostles didn't live in a Christian culture, even though many were getting saved and the church was being added to daily. They didn't live in a Christian culture. They were being threatened and persecuted, and yet they got more bold in their witness and more committed to the work of ministry, and they built churches and established the gospel throughout the world. Back in biblical and the apostolic age, they, they really got it right. And then from the second century to about the start of the 20th century, I think there was a greater focus on truth than on grace. So the church became a little bit colder and maybe a little bit harsher. I think at the start of the 20th century, and I can't prove this, this is what I've, what I've learned from just studying, the start of the 20th century up until about the 90s, I would say that the church, again, got it right. It got that balance of grace and truth, and it started to really uh, do effective ministry. If you look at the most effective times of evangelism and growth of ministry and people walking with Christ, I think you'd have to look at the time from about the 20s to the, to the mid-80s uh, beyond Acts. But this was a time where the church thrived and grew in the right way. But something happened in the 90s, and we've talked about this many times. I don't want to belabor this. But, but in the 90s, there, there started to be an overcompensation in the other direction where we overemphasize grace while weakening the truth. And now this has gone so far that the new mantra is kind of Jesus is love, and we need to kind of, as Christians, soften the rhetoric which, which really is another word for doctrine, we need to soften the rhetoric and we need to minister through our actions instead of through our words. Now, it's a great biblical concept that we should minister through actions, that we should love people, that we should minister to them, that we should encourage them, that we should, should show the love of Christ. We've often heard the phrase, be the hands and feet of Christ. Yes, we're absolutely supposed to do that. But if we do that without biblical conviction behind it, then it's just shallow. It's just being good people. It's just doing nice things. Now, certainly we can't be harsh and judgmental because that will turn people off. If we're pointing our fingers and, and yelling at people and demanding things from them, that nobody wants that. Nobody's going to do that. That's not how Jesus ministered. But if we just have action without conviction, it's not going to work. And there's very strong evidence that this approach has failed. It's been done under the theory that, that people will, will get saved and the church will grow if we just soften it and we just be nice people. But, you know, I read a statistic this week that even with the rise of megachurches, because 30 years ago there weren't churches of 10,000. That was a, a rarity. Now there are hundreds of churches with tens of thousands of people in them. But even with the rise of megachurches, there is not one county in our country that has higher church attendance now than it did 25 years ago. In fact, the Christian church, the evangelical church, has declined 9% or more over the last 20 years in terms of attendance. So this approach of softening the gospel and just ministering to people instead by, by being loving and helping them, which is a wonderful concept, but, but it doesn't have the backing of conviction, that now has not actually strengthen the church, it's weakened the church. And now the church is more divided in terms of theology, more in divided in terms of ministry focus. Churches that are emphasizing prayer and discipleship now are being kind of mocked as old school. There's less focus on doctrine. There's a weaker theology in the church. And that's shown by the fact that increasingly churches are now accepting lifestyles that the Bible clearly says are not of God.
This is happening right before our eyes. So when an event like Paris takes place, it makes us look weak because the church is now largely silent. And it hit me this week. What prominent Christian pastor or leader have you heard speak out against what happened in Paris in the last three days? What, what Christian pastor or leader have you seen on the news being quoted other than Franklin Graham, who's always out there speaking the truth? But, but seriously, what prominent pastor of a 10,000-person church have you seen on the news saying, this is wrong? Christianity in itself has gotten weaker, but it doesn't have to. Our lives and ministry, you and me, our lives and ministry should be a perfect blend of strong biblical conviction and living by the truth and then humbly practicing love and emphasizing grace in our ministry to other people. That's exactly the approach that Jesus took and it's what the disciples did when they were most effective. And if you look back at the text, because I've talked for a while, if you see in verses 13 to 16, this is exactly what Jesus says to us. He's very specific about the responsibility that believers have every day. And I want you to notice this is not a text that's written to pastors. It's not like 2 Timothy where Paul's speaking to Timothy who was a pastor. It's not a, a, a text to church leaders like Ephesians is. Christ here is speaking to the crowd. He's speaking to every single person who follows him. So what he's saying here in verse 13, what he's saying in verse 14, this is our commission. This is foundational, but it's deep. So we can't afford to, to fail at them. This actually should be a strength in our lives. This is essential for us to fulfill our calling as agents of spiritual change. You remember last week we mentioned three things that we are. We're witnesses, we're ambassadors, and we're disciples. As witnesses, we're called to be people who speak truth and, and, and talk about truth all the time. As ambassadors, we're called to be people who represent the truth and serve as an extension of Christ every day. And then as disciples, we're called to develop people to trust Christ and live a lifestyle of truth. And you say, all right, well, that's good, but, but why is that important and how do I do it? Because I'm never going to preach to thousands of people. And I may never write a book or, or have a video ministry. I may, may never leave and go to the mission field. Well, we may all kind of believe that our realm of spiritual influence is tiny, but it's not. We each have an unbelievable opportunity to be salt and light every day, and that can have just as much impact as somebody that stands before 10,000 people and preaches. Look at the calling that God gives us, and I want to encourage you to take some notes this morning because we're going to talk about the properties of salt and light for a couple minutes. But, but just look at what Jesus is calling us to and the function that we're supposed to have as believers. Because Jesus says first to us in verse 13, you're the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt becomes tasteless, it is no longer good for anything. Now that concept of the salt losing its, its, its essence and its ability uh, has great spiritual application for us because salt has four essential properties. It has four essential uses, and each of them has a spiritual implication. So I encourage you to write these down because these are how we're supposed to live. The first quality of salt is that it enhances what it touches. It enhances what it touches primarily 
we all know that it makes taste, uh, food taste better by, by changing the physical characteristics of the food. Now, I, I love, whenever I get a little bit of time late at night, I love to watch the Food Network. I'm one of those people that just, just likes cooking shows. My wife is not as thrilled, especially when they're filleting eel, you know, those kinds of things. You guys have seen those shows. But I love the Food Network. And I'm always amazed as I watch these chefs cook how much salt they use. Because we know the warnings of the doctors, right? Some of you are, well, if I said, you're on a salt diet, yeah, that's me. I, nothing tastes good anymore because I can't salt anything. Salt enhances the food. And we know the warnings of the doctors that it leads to higher blood pressure and other issues. And that's a challenge as we live because salt makes food taste better. In fact, the reason restaurants' uh, food tastes different than home the reason we crave fast food in the middle of the day, the, the reason that, that packaged food kind of just has that extra taste is because now we know with food labeling, they're just loaded with salt. There's just salt everywhere in our food. So, so it enhances the reason restaurants put a bunch of salt in the food and the reason prepackaged food has so much salt and the reason that fast food, if you go to Culver's and get the cheeseburger and the fries and the custard, you're just like bombarding your, your body with all the salt you could possibly need today. Why? Because we crave it. Now look at the spiritual principle. It is our calling to be enhancers. It's our calling to make what is around us better. By speaking the truth in love, by loving each other as ourselves, through that, we are, we are being agents of change. We're helping to change people's lives. We're helping to change the culture for the better. Salt enhances what it touches. Second, salt promotes healing. You know that if you've ever gone in the ocean with a cut. It's painful, and it makes you worry that a tiger shark's going to come and attack you because they're drawn to blood, right? So you sit there and you're kind of grimacing, looking at the waves, hoping there's not a fin anywhere. But you're also just kind of grimacing because that salt is going at the wound, but it's healing it. And you know that it is promoting healing in the same way. Listen now, we as salt have the words of life that can heal a person's soul. Yeah, you have the work of the Holy Spirit. I grant you that. The work of the Holy Spirit is first and foremost. But God also said to us, now you go with my word and you make disciples. In other words, I'm entrusting you with my word to teach spiritual healing, to teach the fact that when somebody trusts in Christ, their life is completely transformed from death to life. You have the words of life. Now go speak them. If we don't share them, how will people hear? If we don't share them, how will people be changed? Salt promotes healing. We have a spiritual ministry of being salt to promote spiritual healing. Third, salt removes stains. Same concept as before. You remember the old hymn, What can wash away my sins? Sing it with me. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood changes. It removes the stain. We are covered as human beings with the stain of sin. Oh, precious is the flow. Speak the next line with me. That makes me white as snow. No other found I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What a great hymn that is. The blood of Jesus washes away the sin. Now he says to us, 
you're now the salt and salt removes stains so we can give people the word of life we can enhance them we can promote healing and their spiritual stains will be removed as they trust in Christ now we can testify how we've been changed and and how we have become agents of personal forgiveness and personal restoration you and I have the power to remove stains in relationships some of us have stains in our relationships this morning. Some of us are at odds with each other. There's, there's a rub there, and we need to be salt and light to each other or salt and light to a non-believer who's pushed against us, and we need to show forgiveness and restoration because that's what salt does. It takes away stains. And fourth, salt's a preservative. Preservative's job is to prevent something from spoiling and rotting, which highlights our role of building each other up spiritually and holding each other accountable. You know, this is one of the hardest but greatest responsibilities that we have as co-laborers in Christ. We are called to support and strengthen each other for the purpose of spiritual maturity. When one of us stumbles, we're called to build them up, to encourage them, to shore up the walls of their faith, and to strengthen them. That's the work of preservation that we have toward each other. It is your job to make sure I don't decay, and it is my job to make sure you don't decay. We need to constantly be calling on each other, constantly keeping each other accountable, constantly praying for each other, constantly building each other up so there's no rotting, no decay, no going back to the old self. We need to both and all be strong and mature as we fulfill this calling to be salt in the world. This is our responsibility to each other. Now, Jesus says this is how it will be prevented from happening. What keeps us from being salt that enhances and heals and removes stains and preserves. What, what prevents this? Look back at verse 13. He says, this happens when the salt becomes tasteless. What a powerful word that is, that the salt loses its potency. It loses its ability to affect change. Now, what would cause that to happen? There's really only one thing. It's a lessening or loss of conviction. And that occurs when we stop studying the Word of God or it gets anemic and we stop learning and our conviction becomes weakened and then we start to compromise morally and we start to become worldly. When that happens, look back at the verse. Jesus says, the saltiness loses its taste and it becomes good for nothing and it's trampled under the feet of men. In other words, not only does it not affect change in others, but they actually walk on it in disrespect. Do people look at our lives and have a disrespect for what we say we are, but we don't actually live? And the salt that should be flavoring and changing and removing the stains and promoting spiritual healing in their lives, now they're just trampling under it because it means nothing. It's become tasteless. What a tragedy that is when we have the ability to influence people's lives for eternity. May God help us not to be salt that's tasteless that has no impact, that has no effect because it's lost its potency. Then he says, second and finally, we need to finish. He says, you're the light of the world. You're salt and you're the light of the world. You're a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hidden. So let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. See, the concept of darkness and light 
is all throughout the scripture. It signifies sin and bondage and salvation and life. Colossians 1.13, study it later today. It makes it abundantly clear. God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. There is an eternal transaction we talk about a lot where God, when he saves us, he moves us from the domain of darkness, where we're caught in bondage, where we're in sin forever, where we're eternally punished. He rescues out of the domain of darkness, and he transfers us into the kingdom of Christ, which is marked by redemption and the forgiveness of sins and light. And that's not just, well, that's great, I got saved, and now I'm good, and, and, and whatever. No, then he says in Ephesians 5, for you were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Now walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light, the, 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 what comes out of the light, consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And then it gets difficult. Do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead dis expose them. It's a disgrace to even speak about those things. But all things become visible when they're exposed to the light. See, the, the, the application is clear. Sin once kept us in darkness and in death, but Christ defeated them by his death and resurrection, and by faith in him, we're transferred from darkness to light. Now he says you have to live as children of the light, never going back to the life of darkness, not even joking about it, not even talking about it, certainly not participating in it, because that's all going to be exposed. Live in the light. That's why, look back at the text one more time. Jesus says, your light can't be hidden. When the light's hidden, it allows the darkness to persist. And there's a lot of darkness in the world this morning. I don't think we even need to read the paper to know that there's darkness in the world this morning. Unspeakable things taking place. Not just terrorism, but, but unspeakable things taking place in the darkness. And he says we cannot allow our light to be hidden because if there's no illumination, people won't see the contrast between life and dark and hope and hopelessness and the truth versus the enemy's lies. Our lives have to be light. They have to be illumination. If there's no contrast between our lives and the life of sin, how will people be able to see the contrast of holiness? And honestly, why would they even care? Because there's no difference. That's why we're called to be holy and set apart. You know, in art, which I don't know much about, but some of you are wonderful artists. In art, contrast, I'm going to quote the, the, the computer now. Contrast is the arrangement of opposite elements white and black, smooth and rough. You get the point. There's a contrast that takes place. And so much of that is controlled by the amount of light that is present. So for us to be distinguished as owned by Christ and to make a significant impact spiritually on the lives of other people, that light must be obvious. That's why Jesus says here, don't hide it under a basket. You should be like a city that's set on the hill 
that can't be hidden. Now, the crowd that he's talking to, because this is on a, on a hill, uh, it's called a mountain, but it's more like a hill, uh, right by the Sea of Galilee, which is surrounded by hills. Jesus goes up onto the mountain, and he starts to speak to the people. And they sit in the valley. It's a natural amphitheater, so you can hear anything. And, and the people gather, and Jesus starts to speak. And he says, you're to be the light of the world like a city on the hill. And the people understood that because they lived right in that area. They knew what it was like to look across the lake at night and to see light. And I have some pictures for you of this. The first one is the hills around the Galilee with just a few lights. And I thought this is probably what it would have looked like in Jesus' day because there weren't huge cities. There still aren't around Galilee. But, but when there was a lantern lit in a house or when there was a gathering of people and they had lanterns, this is what it would have looked like to look across and just see the little dots of light. The second picture we have is the town of Tiberias now. It's really the, the largest town around the Sea of Galilee right on the western shore. And this picture is taken at night from up near Capernaum. Capernaum is, a, is a, a ruined city now up on the northern end. So you can see the impact of the light that, that's visible. Now you have a third picture. The third picture shows the town more fully. And you can see Jesus' principle. You're to be light on a hill. This is what it looks like. Obviously, in the darkness and in the gloom of life, you can see that. You're drawn to it. It's attractive. He says, we as believers are supposed to be the light on the hill. We're supposed to be obvious that people will be drawn to it. And then we'll give you one last picture. This is the United States from space. You can tell where the cities are, right? You can tell where Nebraska is because there's basically no light. But you can see Chicago, right? You can see New York. You can see D.C. You can see Miami. You can see L.A. You can see Seattle. You can see Denver. The cities are obvious. Why? Because there's light. He says, look at it one more time. You're the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus' point is clear. Don't intentionally hide the light by restricting the amount of spiritual holiness that people see in you. Why would we do that? Well, maybe we're ashamed. Maybe we're nervous. Maybe we don't want to be known as a believer. Maybe, maybe there's worldliness that's hiding our light. But Jesus says we've got to be intentional about this. We've got to be bold about shining our light everywhere. Now, look at the reason why he says we have to do this. That people will see our good works and glorify the Lord. This is not for us. This is not so people will look and go, hey, look at Rhodes. Boy, that guy's a Christian. That guy stands for the Lord. That guy knows what's going on. He's a real believer. He's a man of conviction. No, it has zero to do with me. In fact, it should have less to do with me. Because my job and your job is to be light so that people will see what's going on in our lives and not praise us, that they'll praise the Father. That they'll glorify God, that they'll say, here is what life change looks like. Here's what Jesus Christ does to lives. Here's what happens when you trust Christ as your Savior. You go from darkness to light. So when I look at that man or that woman, and I know they're following Jesus Christ, it's so obvious that people aren't turned away from that, that they're drawn to it. And that they glorify God 
as the one that changes life. Now, throughout the rest of the book, I'm done. Throughout the rest of the sermon, he contrasts 16 ways in which our light can be diminished by hiding our good works through unholy living. And I gave you a little hand out there, and I'm not going to even read through this because it's long and our time's done. But, but just, just take this and look at it. Maybe use the Sermon on the Mount as your study this week. But when we talk about the salt losing its taste, there's also a way for the light to lose its, its power, for it to be hidden. And, and it was interesting because I've taught the Sermon on the Mount before, but I never kind of realized this until I went through it. For the next two chapters, he lists 16 different ways in which our salt can become tasteless and our light can become hidden. And the reason that's important for us to know and for us to be on guard against is because these things not only keep us in sin and not only damage our witness, but he says the real problem is that it hinders people from seeing his love and mercy. When we embrace these things, when these things are still part of our life, not only does it damage us, not only does it damage our relationships and our witness, but it damages people from being able to understand the glory and grace of God. And I can't think of a time in our history since the apostles died in which our world needs a greater awareness of the truth and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ are when those who trust in Christ and love Christ need to be more bold about being salt and light. Because this morning, right now, people need to know about Jesus Christ. The pervasiveness of what's going on, the tragedy of what's going on, the dullness of the response of the Christian church tells us that we need to be salt and light so we can tell people about the love and grace of Jesus Christ. You're either salt that enhances and heals and preserves. You're either light that illuminates hearts and minds. Or you're tasteless and ineffective and dark and hidden. As usual, there's no middle ground. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and not glorify you, that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. Church, we have an opportunity to be salt and light. We're going into a new area of ministry. We're going into a new opportunity. And we, as individuals and as a church, come on now, we need to fulfill our calling well. Salt and light. That's our job.